course, is John 13 through 17. And for my money, it's the most important passage in the whole, uh, whole Bible about spirituality. So we're calling this TBS, True Biblical Spirituality for TBFers. But before we look at our passage in the Upper Room Discourse today, I want us to look at John chapter, or Revelation chapter 2, excuse me. And let me read that to you from the New American Standard Bible. I'm going to look at the first four verses. Revelation 2, 1 through 4. To the angel, Angelos there, probably better translated messenger, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand from chapter 1, that's Jesus earlier in the chapter, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the stars represent the pastors, the lampstands represent the churches as described earlier. I know your deeds, church at Ephesus, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, moral, moral evil in the church, and you put to test those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this one thing against you. You have left. You didn't lose it. If you lose something, you're a victim. You may not be able to find it. When you leave something, you can't go back and get it. Jesus says, my problem with you guys is you've left your first love. You know, the book of Revelation is all about end times prophecy, but the first three chapters don't deal with end times prophecy. In chapter 1, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, commissions John the apostle to write the book. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus interacts with seven different local churches in that day. Jared tells them and us what he likes in local churches and what he doesn't like, what he wants in local churches and doesn't want. And the very first church he looks at in this seven-church evaluation is the church in Ephesus. And he talks about a lot of things that they're doing that are good, but he says, I've got one thing against you. Now, the bad news is, that one thing, Carolyn, the Lord had against them, is really the only thing that matters. He says they've left their first love. I can remember as a younger person hearing sermons about this passage. And quite often the uh, minister would talk about what is the first love they're leaving, right? We've we got to avoid leaving the first love. And I grew up in Southern Baptist culture, so I can remember several times different pastors said the first love, obviously, is evangelism. I mean, Southern Baptists love to evangelize. God bless them for it. So obviously, uh, that's our first love. So it's got to be his first love. They just don't evangelize. Or maybe a Dallas Seminary guy would say they don't do deep enough Bible study or they don't pray in depth enough or they're not worshiping properly. And I'm convinced he's not talking about a specific activity when he says they've left their first love. When, when you make a gnomic statement like that in Scripture, you're talking about a big category, not a list of to-do things. Their first love is they haven't been centering what they do on the person of Jesus. They haven't been centered on Jesus when they evangelize, when they study the Bible, when they worship, when they pray. They haven't been centered on Him. Or, to use the terminology that the Lord Jesus himself, Derek's going to use in our passage today in the Ephraim Discourse, Rita, we wouldn't say they're not centering on him. We would say they haven't been abiding in him. Uh, our passage, and now you can turn, please, to John 15. Our passage today, John 15, 1 through 6, is the very center of the Ephraim Discourse. It tells us the very engine of all true biblical spirituality. The one word key to true biblical spirituality is abide, or to be abiding in Christ, centered on Him, so that our lives, our motivations, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are designed to glorify and please Him. Very important passage, but it's also very important that we pray, we'll be teachable to God's Word, and... Uh, Glenna, in the aftermath of 9-11, churches all over the Fruited Plain were praying for our military and for our uh, efforts to protect ourselves against the Al-Qaeda and other such groups. And so we, like many churches, at the beginning of the sermon, 
began praying specifically for the military for about two weeks. And after it looked like there weren't going to be any immediate repeat attacks, a lot of us stopped doing that. And your dad, World War II hero as he was, uh, I think we went a little longer. I think we went three whole weeks where we were praying for the military, you know. You're welcome, Jared. But uh, whenever we stopped doing that concertedly, uh, as soon as the message was over, he walked up and said, hey, Brad, I noticed you didn't pray for the military this week. I said, yeah, yeah you know, we didn't do it. You know, it's been three weeks, no more attacks, you know. He said, if it's important enough to do it last week, it's important enough to do every week. I said, yes, sir, Bob, we will do that. So uh, we probably should have been doing that 38 years ago when we started, but uh, uh, it's our pleasure to, to pray, not just for our teachability, for, but for our troops, and also for those who protect us close to home, peace officers and firefighters. So uh, let's do that. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the glories of the Lord's day, the very first thing we do on the first day of the new week as Christians all over this globe is to get together, uh, to worship, to pray, to fellowship, uh, to revel in the gospel, to study the word. And a very first significant thing we do on the day of the resurrection is to worship the resurrected Savior. So it's our privilege to do that. And we're very thankful for the freedom we've got uh, on this corner to do that in large part because of our active military and our police officers, peace officers, and firefighters. We pray your protection and blessing on them. And we pray today, Lord, as we open this very this exquisite, beautiful, super mega strategic passage that uh, uh, the word of God would become alive in our hearts. And this would not be mere information, but transforming truth and that uh, the Holy Spirit would truly be our teacher. And uh, I pray you'd sprinkle spiritual rut remover all over this auditorium and all over this building today. Uh, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Love this passage, but first, to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, three cartoons about pastors or churches. This is kind of an online cartoon strip called Church Mice, and the first caption says, uh, the guy says to a gal, I thought we'd never get out of church this past Sunday. Can you relate to that, people? Can I hear an amen on that? Yeah, okay, I thought so. Uh, he goes on to say, I bet our pastor preached for over 45 minutes. <laughs> huh? She says, wow, what was the sermon about? He never did say. <laughs> that can happen. Okay, the guy with uh, on the left with the mic on is the pastor and this may be a Baptist church where you kind of are forced to walk out and tell the pastor how great he is, which I think is a very good idea myself, but we don't do that here. Uh, but anyway, the, the, uh, the guy attending church is shaking the pastor's hand, and he says to the pastor, I felt like you were preaching right at me this morning, especially after you pointed and said my name the third time. <laughs> so finally, this is uh, the pastor on the left uh, and probably somebody like John on the right, the youth minister, and he's got a new evangelism strategy, and he's trying to sell it to the pastor. And they've chiseled into the church sign, visitors, free lottery ticket after every service. I thought that sounded like a good idea, but we won't, uh, we won't do that. All right, our passage this morning is John 15, 1 through 6, the very core of the Upper Room Discourse. And I like to say this passage breaks down into two parts. Ken, this breaks down into two halves. We've got a big half and a little half. Uh, the big half is verses 1 through the first part of verse 5. And it tells us that believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, put your name in the blank, okay? Jeff Skinner is to abide in Christ so he can produce spiritual fruit. The little half, the second part of verse 5 and all of verse 6, gives us the negative, the flip side of that. Believers, uh, Carla Buchanan is a believer, is to abide in Christ so she can avoid spiritual mediocrity and divine discipline. Okay? Um, let's define abide. Uh, for my money, abiding in Christ is when a believer is actively recognizing and responding from the heart to the one who has saved him or her. 
It's a relational response of submission to the one who has saved us as our Lord and not merely a mechanical, rote, religious compliance to his rules. And a lot of people settle for a dry orthodoxy where they obey the rules. They don't lie, cheat, and steal, cuss, or chew tobacco very much. And if they do, they don't spit it very far. So they think they're spiritual because they're doing the right things but quite often they do the right things for the wrong reasons. And the more they do the right things, the more impressed they are with themselves. That's Pharisaism. That's not spirituality. Abiding in Christ will not only motivate you to do the right things, to obey the rules, but you'll obey them with consistency without ever noticing how wonderful you are because you're not focusing on yourself. You're focusing on your loving Lord who saved you And so, of course, you're willing to get up and help with the nursery. No big deal, because it's just one way you can serve the cause, right? That kind of thing. Now, I want you to notice, we we said this the very first week we started this series many months ago. And I said, in the Gospel of John, there are two major concepts that are are taught. Uh, First, the concept of believing in Christ. Ninety times, Debbie, we're told that to receive eternal life, we must pistuo ace Christo. We must believe in Christ. And saving faith is active, receptive trust. It's not just mental assent. Uh, I believe in Alexander the Great. There was a guy named Alexander the Great. I haven't met him personally, but I heard about him. You know, Saving faith isn't just historical, intellectual assent. It involves full consent of the will. It's active, receptive trust. Okay, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe on his name. So according to the Gospel of John, 90 different times the spiritual birth, becoming a member of God's family, comes to those who believe in Christ. Uh, introduced earlier, but the Lord talks about this in chapter 8, but here at the very center of the Upper Room Discourse, all about spirituality for believers, we see the second major concept, Aaron, that's taught in the Gospel of John. It's not to believe in Christ, is to abide in Christ. Believing in Christ is when a sinner convicted of his sin or her sin and his or her inability to save themselves recognizes and responds from the heart to the one who can save them with active receptive trust. Abiding in Christ is when a believer who's believed in Christ recognizes and responds from the heart to the one who has saved him or her and walks and submits to him as Lord such that Their service is significant. Their service is truly spiritual. They're doing the right things for the right reasons. So we're going to really emphasize abiding in Christ for the rest of the Upper Room Discourse because it's here he introduces that concept specifically. He's been all over it, but now he's giving us the bullseye. Now, here's the thing. TBF is this strange animal that is a group of born-again believers from a wide variety of different denominational backgrounds united by our faith in Christ and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually. Uh, The Christian life starts not with church attendance or giving up bad habits or trying to be a better person. It starts with an awareness that at our worst, we not only have broken God's standards, we break our own, right? And we're unable to do anything about it and fix it ourselves. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And the bottom line of the gospel, the good news is that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or we could put it this way, because Christ died for our sins, all of them, we don't have to die in our sins. He knows the worst thing you've ever done that nobody knows about. He knows about it. He went to the cross to pay for it. And the metaphysical, spiritual, moral debt we owe to a holy, righteous God, Jesus paid for on the cross, which is why in John 20 we're told many other signs Jesus also performed that aren't written in this book. I'm not trying to tell you everything I know about Jesus, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who died for your sins and rose again, and that believing in him in that way, you'd have life in his name. John 1.12, why do I call saving faith active receptive trust? As many as received him. It's not just mental assent, full consent of the will. That's all the thief on the cross does. And the thief on the cross wasn't a thief. He was a terrorist who was a murderer. That's why he was being crucified by the Romans. So abiding in Christ is the believer's 
normative expected response to the one who saved them, but sometimes we're abiding in Christ and sometimes we're not. Okay? So let's look at the big half. Uh, John 15, 1 through 5a. Let me just read that section in the New American Standard Bible. The Lord Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father, God the Father, is the vine dresser or the farmer, the guy taking care of the grapevine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. He's more interested in our character than our circumstances. Then he says, all y'all, that's plural, right? That's the plural in the original, are already clean. He's talking to the 11 believing apostles at this point because of the word I told you already about believing in me. But now we're talking about abiding in me. Now, here's the command to the believers. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch, he said, in me, back in verse 2, cannot bear fruit, anything that's spiritually significant, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You, all y'all, are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Stop right there, okay? That's the first half, okay? Now, you realize the verse divisions were added in about 1550, those numbers, okay? Uh, the actual the chapter divisions didn't exist until the 13th century, when Stephen Langston put numbers in front of the chapters, and we added the verse numbers later. And sometimes uh, they'll stop. Uh, there'll be an idea that goes stops in the middle of a verse of a number and, and continues. And I'm, we're kind of focusing on sentence structure instead of the numbers there. So that's why we're stopping in the middle of a verse. Okay, let's go back to verse one. And by the way, where where are we when Jesus says all this? He just said believers are abiding Christ so we can bear much spiritual fruit. Where are we? Look back at the verse right before the first verse of chapter 15. We've been in the upper room, right? This is kind of, this is kind of a trick question. Like, uh, who is buried in Grant's tomb? That'd be President Grant, okay? When did the War of 1812 start? 1812. What color are black boxes on airplanes? They're orange. So it's not always like you think. Uh, where's the upper room discourse? take place starts in the upper room the rest of us walking from the upper room which is roughly there to the mount of olives to the garden of gethsemane and to get from where the the guys would have been to the mount of olives they walk right past the temple which is all about the messiah jesus but notice in the last verse of chapter 14 uh the lord says but so that the world, you guys aren't, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You guys are believers. We're not talking to unbelievers in any of this part. We're talking to believers. But so the world, people who don't believe, may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commands me. Get up. Let's go from the upper room to Gethsemane. So we're walking, Pat, somewhere between the upper room and Gethsemane on the slopes of Mount of Olives. So we're walking by, and they may have walked past some uh, cultivated grapevines, and that may be part of what the Lord is, is why he's starting with this at analogy. But uh, let's look at, uh, so we got that. Where are we? We're not in the upper room anymore, but this is still the upper room discourse, okay? That's what they call it. Verse 1, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. He's going to give us a vivid word picture. My Father, God the Father, is the vine dresser. Uh, what's all that mean? Well, in this analogy, this extended analogy, Jesus says that God the Father is the guy in charge of the grapevines. Jesus himself is the true vine, and believers in Christ are branches in Christ. Look at verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, unbelievers are not branches in Christ. Sorry, they don't qualify. They're welcome to become branches in Christ. What must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30 I asked a Jehovah's Witness that once on my doorstep because that's directly from the Bible. What must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30, the guy said, you've got to obey the gospel. Most of you said, hey, fine, that's exactly right. I'm a theologian. I ask a question. What do you mean by that? You've got to obey all the laws and commandments of the Bible. Gospel means good news. When you find out to get saved, you've got to obey all the laws and commandments of the Bible. That's not good news. That's impossible news. You can't do that. 
So, but these guys are all good, good news people. They're all believers, right? All 11 of these guys are believers. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, according to Jesus, branches in him sometimes don't bear fruit. He takes away. The weird thing about that statement is the Greek verb, New Testament Greek verb, uh, iri, can be translated takes away, or it can be translated lifts up. And I think a lot of us think lift up's a better uh, statement because when you have a dysfunctional, non-fruit-bearing branch, the, the wise uh, grape farmer, and I don't have a lot of experience growing grapes, I'm just telling you straight up, okay? I got a black thumb, okay? We'll lift it up physically to get it away from the contamination of the dirt and bacteria, and quite often that revives it. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, I'm going to translate that, lift up. Be sure and do the research. All the research will tell you that that verb can mean that. And every branch that does bear fruit, I'm going to prune it. I'm going to do things to make it possible for you to bear even more fruit. So we've got this basic analogy where God the Father is the vine dresser, God the Son is the true vine, believers are branches in Christ. He says branches that aren't bearing fruit will be lifted up. Branches that do bear fruit will be pruned. You'll get some challenges that will cause you to kind of the same thing about weight resistance. Uh, this didn't work for me, but, you know, you do uh, weight resistance. You work your muscles against resistance. What happens in theory? They get stronger. So our faith working against resistance actually makes it stronger, and that's an important part of what he has for us. Talking about uh, branches that don't bear fruit, what do you know about Judah? I'm going to use an Old Testament example. What do you know about Judah, the, the man who's the head of the tribe of Judah? What do you know about him? Well, he's the head of a very exalted tribe, isn't he, Michael? Because who comes from the line of Judah? That's the Messianic line. That's Jesus' the tribe, right? But yet, what do you know about him in Genesis? Have you read 38? Are we all adults here? Everybody sitting down? Judah, I tell you this. He had sex with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, but only because he thought she was a Canaanite prostitute. So that's the only reason he did that, okay? At that point, I would say he's not bearing a lot of fruit. That's just me, okay? Verse 3, you, all 11 of you, are already clean. You're already saved. You're already branches in me. That ain't the issue here. Because of the word I've previously spoken to you that you have believed. Now we're talking about abiding, okay? So we have this word picture, two basic kinds of branches, and a statement of fact. In other words, Peter, James, and John, plus the other eight guys, Kristen, are all believers. That ain't the problem. They're believers. They're branches. But abiding is contingent. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we don't. Look at verse 4. Uh, and you know what? Let me stop there for a minute. I, I've, I've already commit, you know, confessed to you. I don't know that much about bearing, uh, growing grapes. I'm just telling you, okay? Uh, so for me, maybe a better analogy would be something else, okay? That's just to warm you up or soften you up. This is uh, uh, two grapes coming to the pastor's office, okay? That's a caricature of me. Kind of looks like me, really. And the guy says, I heard it through the grapevine, you need a minister of music. There was a song many years ago. I think the Temptations sang it. Uh, you know, grapevines are, are great if you're a grape farmer. For me, let me use the analogy of maybe refrigerators and microwave ovens. Uh, i just tell you straight up, I'm a very happy owner of one refrigerator and one microwave oven. I, actually, they belong to me and Debbie. We kind of have joint custody of them. Uh, uh, these appliances are mine. They are in me. That is, they are in me house. In me casa. Okay. Uh, and with very few exceptions, they have worked wonderfully well for many, many years. But if for whatever reasons they were to become unplugged, if my refrigerator became unplugged, maybe Scott and Nancy were playing a trick on us and they came over and unplugged our refrigerator. They do stuff like that. Or maybe uh, I had a very heavy theology book stacked on the, on the top of my microwave oven next to the fly, flash water. We keep our flash water on top of the refrigerator if you need it. That's where it is. 
But sometimes you put real heavy theology books up there, and maybe it fell down and hit the cord and pulled the plug out. You know what? If the refrigerator becomes unplugged for any reason, Shannon, it's not going to keep my Coke Zero cold anymore. Okay? Now, when that thing stopped working, I don't think anybody say, well, golly, we've had this thing for four years. I thought it was a refrigerator, but it must be just a really weird large screen TV because it's not keeping the Coke Zero cold, you know? That's not the problem. The problem is not that it's a bad refrigerator or not a refrigerator at all. The problem is it's unplugged, okay? It doesn't become a storage unit if it becomes unplugged. It just becomes an unplugged refrigerator. Believers not abiding in Christ are like refrigerators that aren't plugged in. We won't work. Oh, we can go through the motions. And people in ministry, including me, can go through the motions. But we're not doing anything really significant or something that's truly spiritual. Look at verse 4 through 5a. Jesus says to these guys who are branches in him, he commands them to do something. Abide in me. This is going to be especially important after the ascension. How come? We've got the death of Christ three days later, the resurrection, 40 days later, the ascension. Why is abiding in Christ really important after the ascension? Because he's not walking around on earth anymore. How do we spiritually fellowship with a physically absent Savior? We recognize and respond from the heart to the one who saved us as our living Lord so we serve him for the right reasons, even if nobody notices how great we are. And we don't notice how great we are ever because it's not about us to start with, right? Just like there's nothing to brag about in salvation, Ephesians 2 says that, there's nothing to brag about in Christian service if you're abiding in Christ. When you're, rec- when you're really impressed with how impressed you are with Jesus, you're not impressed with Jesus, you're impressed with, uh, with yourself, and that's not the essence of spirituality. Verse 4, so abide in me, recognize and respond from the heart to me, make it personal, relate to me. You can't be lying, cheating, fornicating, cussing, throwing stuff at people, abusing people, at the same moment you're recognizing, responding from the heart to the one, Jesus Christ, who saved you. You can't do both at the same time. You're doing one or the other. So he says, abide in me, and that's an imperative, second person plural, abide, all y'all, as a command, as the branch in me cannot bear fruit of itself unless it is plugged in, unless the refrigerator is plugged in the wall, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, he abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. So the basic commandment of the passage is Jesus telling these salvifically clean believers, I'm pretty sure all 11 are believers, and if if you're not sure about that, let's look at some data real quick. Go back to chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 10. Very important you see this distinction so we've got our categories correct. Chapter 13, verse 10 and 11, Jesus said to Peter, he who has bathed, taken the bath of salvation, needs only to wash his feet. Because sometimes you're not abiding, so sometimes you are going to get your feet dirty as you walk through the road of life. But it's already completely clean as far as going to heaven's concerned. And all y'all are clean, but not all of you. Judas is still in the room at that point. 4, verse 11, he knew the one. One of the 12 was never believed at all. Who was betraying him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. Judas left the room in 1330. Now you're in chapter 14, verse 2. Chapter 14, verse 2, the Lord says, one of my favorite statements in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, all y'all. They're going to heaven. He assures them of that multiple times in the passage. Look at chapter 14, verse 4. You, all y'all, know the way to heaven. You've believed in me. Look at chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. The peace of Jesus ain't available to unbelievers. They can get it, but it's not available to them in that state. Peace, irene, I leave with all y'all because you're believers. You've got to access it, but you can have it. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives you, He's distinguishing, distinguishing them from the, from the world, right? Throughout. Look at, go back to chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. He's saying, you guys are believers, okay? And yet he tells them, go back to verse 4, 
You've got to abide in me. And you're not going to bear the fruit, kind of fruit I'm looking for, real significant spiritual fruit, unless you're abiding in me, unless you're relating to me, and that motivates you and keeps you doing it for the right reasons, right? Very, very important. No substitute for that. But churches and preachers uh, desperately want people to watch other people do religious stuff. So a lot of us will give you a lottery ticket to show up for a prayer meeting. In fact, if it would work, I'll give you two lottery tickets for coming to a prayer meeting, okay? But if we do that, you're coming for the wrong reasons. And Jesus says, that ain't nothing. Uh, the Kiwanis Club can do that. And God bless the Kiwanis Club. They do a lot of good stuff. But they're a civic club. And we and 90 of us, 90 other churches in town are churches. And so we're supposed to be doing the right things for the right reasons. That's very, very important. Uh, look at the first part of verse 5. We got the fact we're clean. We got the command abide in Christ. And then he says, let me just re repeat myself. I'm the vine. You're the branches. He already told them in verse 2, some branches in him don't bear fruit. He's commanded them to abide so they will. And he just amplifies that. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So that's the deal. Okay. And that's the first, the big half of the passage. Now, in the interest of fairness, let me point out that, or full disclosure, I might say, uh, there are good evangelical Christians in three different camps when it comes to this passage. Uh, I'd call one the loss of salvation view. I'd call the other one the proof of salvation view. And I'm going to call my personal favorite the fellowship or um, fruitfulness of believers view. Uh, the first view would just say, hey, uh, the Lord is telling these believers, if you don't abide in me consistently enough, you're, you're believers now, but you could lose your salvation. You could lose your possession of eternal life and or your inclusion in the family of God. That's one way you can interpret these passages. Some people do that. Born-again people do that. Uh, second view would be what I would call the proof of salvation view. This would be the position that all real believers pretty much abide in Christ all the time. Well, they don't live lives of sinless perfection but they don't leak very much oil and if they do they always bounce back and so uh, really this passage is designed so you can root out all the false christians in your churches because they don't abide in christ or love jesus as much as you do you know so that's kind of the position there uh, and the point is uh, those who uh, claim to be christians but don't abide consistently were never really christians at all and that's a position that many hold but my position is that all these guys are believers. That's not an issue. He's told them he's preparing heavenly places for them. They're going to go to heaven. That's a given. He's promised them that. Now he's saying, in order for you to do service, especially after I'm physically gone after the ascension, you've got to abide in me. You've got to be doing what you're doing as a heart response to me. You've got to be centered on me. You've got to be recognizing, responding from the heart to the one who has saved you to doing the right things for the right reasons, right? So that's, that's my position. Um, and you know what? TBF allows people to hack out their own positions. We've probably got people in all three views here. But let me just say, I'm not the only one who holds this view. I hate to be a name dropper, but I actually know some of these people personally. So watch this. Charles Ryrie holds this view, number three. Chuck Swindoll, R.K. Harrison, John Mitchell, former president of Multnomah Bible College, Keith Krell, Jody Dillow, J. Dwight Pentecost, who isn't Pentecostal, which is strange, but it's just it. Uh, and my sister is Pentecostal. Uh, we were talking to Carla about my sister. My middle sister, Peggy, uh, is, wants to be a Pentecostal superstar. Uh, but it's funny, when my mom and Peggy drive through downtown Beaumont, whenever they meet a guy that says, we'll work for money, my Peggy's driving, and my mother is sitting in a passenger shotgun, and whenever they see somebody that Peggy wants to help, she goes, Mom, quick, give me a five. She does that. Sorry, Peggy, if you're listening. I just, just It's so fun, you know, confess your sister's sins. It's probably, boom. Uh, yeah, so uh, Ryrie, Swindoll, Harrison, Mitchell, Krell, Dillo, Pentecost, Renee Lopez, and Dr. Bob Leitner. Going to hear a shout out for Dr. Bob? Yeah. He holds this view. And, you know, just whoever holds a view doesn't prove it. But for me, I can see how people can come to the other views. But as I read this passage, 
he's, he's telling these guys as believers, you need to love me more, you need to believe more, you need to know me better, and you need to abide in me. You know, he's telling believers to believe, people who love him to love him more. He's making all these fine distinctions because spirituality in a fallen world is you know, uh, a complex matrix of stuff, but it all centers on one thing, abiding in Christ. Right? That's, that's where it's at. Okay? Uh, yeah, so let's look at this second half, the bottom part there in blue. Believers are to abide in Christ, the positive part, so we can produce spiritual fruit, which is what we want, right? The negative side is, by abiding in Christ, we can avoid spiritual mediocrity, just a dry orthodoxy, and divine discipline. And then the second little half breaks down into two parts. The latter part of verse 5 warns us of the real possibility of Brad McCoy or any of you uh, of having a spiritually uh, half-speed, mediocre kind of a lifestyle. Uh, I stopped in the middle of the statement there. Look at the second part of verse 5. One who abides in me bears fruit, much fruit. But here's the, the, here's the killer. Apart from me, in, in this context, me, apart from abiding in me as a believer, you can do nothing. Now, you know, one thing we stress around here a lot is the Bible doesn't mean, doesn't always mean what it says, but it always means what it means by what it says. Okay? If I tell Gay, uh, I wish it were raining cats and dogs out there today. I'm not saying I wish small domesticated mammals were falling from the sky, right? And when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, he's not talking about cannibalism. We spent a whole passage, a whole message on that recently. It's a graphic metaphor of personal appropriation in faith. And so we've got to read the same thing here. So when he says, hey, if you're not abiding in me, you can do nothing that's really spiritually significant and vital. Nothing here doesn't mean nothing, absolutely. A believer cannot be abiding in Christ and go to work, go to church, sing a solo, preach a sermon, teach a Sunday school class, serve as a deacon, serve as a pastor, serve as a mission director. And you know what? We might even do it well enough that other people are very impressed. You can actually do it. The right things for the wrong reasons. But the point is, for believers to do anything that's really spiritually vital as God sees it, whether it's going to church or going to work or praying or preaching or whatever it is, you've got to be abiding in Christ. Okay, That's the point. You see what I'm talking about? Uh, don't read, unless you abide in me, you can't do anything. You can do a lot of stuff. You can do anything you want to do. And in fact, a lot of stuff the Lord doesn't want you to do if you're not abiding in Christ. But I think he's thinking not so much about sin. He's thinking about doing the right kind of stuff for the wrong reasons. What did he tell the church in Ephesus? He said, you're not doing anything. You guys don't do anything in that church. Now he lists all the stuff they're doing, and it's all good. But he said, i got a problem. You've left your first love. You're not abiding in me. You're not doing it for the right reason. You're you know, coldly orthodox, and that's not what he wants, right? Now, we've got a very graphic uh, word picture in verse 6. We go from the warning against mediocrity to a warning against divine discipline. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's going to be thrown away as, as simile, metaphor, not exactly the same, but as a picture as a branch, a barren grape branch that doesn't bear fruit. And it dries up. And you know, do fruits to branches like that, physically to branches like that, they just get rid of them. They discard them. They just burn them up for firewood. They're good for nothing but that purpose only. Now, here's the thing. I think we've got to read the text in context. And that's uh, one thing I think Dallas Seminary taught us is context is always king. I think a lot of people, and Jenny and Stan, you can relate to this. Some people, every time they see the word baptism in the Bible, you know what they think of? They think of water. They think of water every single time. But when you look closely at the context, the word baptism means to immerse or to identify with. And when you get immersed as a, a believer in water, that's one way you can be baptized. But quite often the term baptism just means to identify with. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. got nothing to do with water. Other people, every time they see the word saved sozo, soteria in the original, they think saved from hell. But in Acts 27, Paul preaches a sermon on a ship and says, unless everybody here stays on, everybody on here must stay on board in order to be saved. Is he talking about going to heaven? 
talking about being saved from that storm. Don't go overboard. Hold on. The ship is going to survive. And some people, every time they see burning, <laughs> and for obvious reasons, uh, they're probably thinking about somebody smoking. No, they're probably thinking about uh, hellfire. And I do believe in hellfire as taught in Scripture. But we're not talking to unbelievers about hellfire here. We're talking about being plugged in or not plugged in. Let's see if there's any other references to divine discipline and uh, evaluation that uses that similar kind of terminology. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. If you got your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 3. We've been bumping into this a lot lately, but it really is important. He's talking to believers. He's told them, I'm preparing places for you, and I'm going to bring you back to the places. So, you know, unless he's, you know, conditioning that, uh, and I think all those apostles are really believers, so why is he telling them all this stuff that doesn't relate to real believers? Um, here's what I would say well, to that. You guys, most of you know that 1 Corinthians 3 and the first five verses of 4 are talking about an event where church-age Christians are going to have the fruit of their Christian life, the effects of their Christian life, evaluated by Christ for the purpose of commendation and reward or lack of same. And that's why Jesus says stuff like, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward in heaven. That's Matthew 7, but we're in 1 Corinthians 3. The event where church-age Christians have their fruit, the, the effects of their faith in their life evaluated for reward or lack of same, for commendation or lack of same. Uh, and we're looking at verses 14 and 15, but immediate context, he's talking about we build on the foundation of our faith in Christ. No one can lay a foundation, salvation, other than that which is found in Jesus Christ. But how do you build on it? What kind of spiritual life are you building upon that? Are you abiding in Christ and bearing real fruit? Are you just carnal or are you just going through the motions and not abiding in Christ? That's the question. Well, we're told when Christ looks at your work and more importantly my work, the things we've done in our Christian life, we're told in the text, verse 14, 15, if any man's work, a Christian's uh, work, lifestyle as a believer remains after Jesus looks at what you did, why you did it, were you doing, doing it centered on me or not, that person will receive reward. The original language there is important, misthos, because salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is not a reward. But rewards, like medals in the military, are on top of service. They're for special service. If a person has built a substantial, fruitful Christian life by abiding in Christ as a lifestyle, that person is going to receive reward. On the other hand, if any person, we're talking about believers, not for destiny, but for uh, evaluation and reward, if any man's work is burned up, you did the right things for the wrong reasons, you weren't abiding in Christ, he'll suffer a loss. Context tells me that means a reward. And then the text goes on to say, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. If you don't abide in Christ as a lifestyle and you don't have substantial fruit in your Christian life, uh, the one who does not abide in me is going to be thrown away as a branch. Jesus doesn't need people going through the motions. In fact, Jesus doesn't even need your or my help at all. Jesus will get the kingdom here with us or without us. It's our privilege to abide in and serve, to give our lives away. But if I blow it, God's plan goes right on. I do not have the power to veto God's plan. But he's just saying, hey, I want you to abide in me, bear much fruit. If you don't, you can dry up and become at best coldly orthodox, and that's worthless to me. Without abiding in me, you can do nothing that's spiritually significant, right? Isn't that what he said? Then he uses the analogy of the branches that are just used for firewood. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to have our, our Christian lives evaluated. If we're doing the right things for the right reason, motivated by being centered on Christ, we're going to receive commendation and reward. If we don't, we'll suffer a loss of that, even though we'll still be in the family, we're branches in Christ, but we'll go through the fire of the scrutiny of the Lord Jesus seeing what you did, which we can see what you do, but why you do it. Okay? And I just tell you this straight up. I love this church. 
Okay? I went to Dallas Seminary and found out all about the ideal of the local church. Let me tell you something. This church ain't ideal. There ain't an ideal church. People say, we want a New Testament church. We want a New Testament church. Let's go, which one? Laodicea? Corinth? The Galatian churches? They're all messed up, you know? I uh, love this church. It's not ideal, but neither is anything in a fallen world. And one thing I can say, I guess this is not bragging, it's true. I got two adult kids that love the Lord, love their country, love their families, love their parents, uh, love pastors, because even if I had a bad day and somebody said something I didn't like or somebody did something I didn't want them to do, I never went home and whined about the church in front of my kids. I talked to God about it. If I needed to, I talked to the person I was bummed out about it. A lot of times you just don't. You just pray for God to change them. And sometimes he does. Not always, but sometimes he does. But, you know, I want to do the right thing the right way. And I think that a lot of people get burned out in Christian services, lay people or maybe even vocational ministry, because we're not plugged into the wall. So you're going through the motions. And you can do that for a while. But eventually I think you get a sour attitude and, uh, your people who know you the best see that. Okay. Now, let me ask you another question. We started in Revelation 2, and we're about to wind down here. So I got 45 minutes, according to the cartoon, right? So 38.45 right now, if you wonder. But uh, what was the problem with the church in Ephesus? And by the way, in Revelation 1, we see the Son of Man, Jesus, in the middle of seven lampstands. And those seven lampstands represent the churches, and the first church is Ephesus. What does he say to them? Yeah, I like all this stuff you're doing. You're doing all the right stuff, but you've lost your first love. You're not doing it for the right reason. And he says, if you don't go back and get your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to put you out of business. I don't want a civic club in Ephesus. I want a church. I don't want you doing the right things for the wrong reasons and becoming self-righteous jerks. I want you to become contagious in your spirituality. And that only happens when it's real, when you're abiding in Christ. So, take this to heart. God is more interested in our character than our circumstances. Remember that when you pray. God's more interested in our inner spirituality than our outward religiosity. How can a pastor say that? Well, you know what? I, just, I guess I just won't put any more money in the box or kind of permitting anymore. Please, please, please don't stop putting money in the box. Please don't. Stop going to prayer meeting if you already come. And if you don't, we're here you know, for your convenience every Wednesday night, just so you'll know. Uh, but we want you to do the right things for the right reasons. You can talk to me secretly about those lottery tickets, though, if you want to. Uh, God's more interested in our abiding in Christ than our impressing other people or ourselves with all the wonderful sacrifices we're making for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will and we can bear real fruit, even though we're probably not going to become rich or famous, even if you do the right thing the right way, most of the time nobody else notices you either. <laughs> they don't notice how all, all the wonderful things you do because you're doing it the right way for the right reasons. You're not making a big deal about it. And most importantly, you never be obsessed with how great you are either because you're going to be just responding to the greatness of the one you love and you serve, who's your Lord, your Savior, your best friend, and you're relating to Him as you empty the dirty diapers from the hamper. And so it's all good, right? If we do that, and that's the key to the spiritual life, our lives can echo the words of Jesus in the model prayer for thine, not mine, but thine is the kingdom of power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, help us to plug into the wall and quite often good Christian people get burned out or get bitter because they're just not plugged in. They're doing all the right things and they do so much and they're so tired and they're so busy and nobody else cares like they do. And uh, when we're obsessing on all that we do and how great we are, we're not abiding in Christ. And for most of us, I don't think our main issue is we might run off on our spouse or we might sell drugs or we might murder somebody next week or rob a bank. I think the real spiritual battle is why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing it out of love for our Lord Jesus Christ centered on him? Are we recognizing, responding from the heart to the one who has saved us? So of course we're obeying the rules, but we're doing them for the right reasons. Or are we just kind of going through the motions? 
And by the nature of the case, we can't see people's hearts. So when people show up a lot or want to do things or start things or organize things or teach things or sign up for rotations or put their names on other sign-up lists, we're so happy to see it. And of course we are. But uh, some of these people are like uh, uh, meteorites that just flame out. And we wonder why. And, and maybe it's because they and sometimes we are just not abiding in Christ. We're just not plugged into the wall. We're just going through the motions. So I pray you would do a deep spiritual surgery on all of us, including me. Because I get paid to be good. So it's really easy for me to go through the motions because i got a real motivation to show up for church and prayer meeting every week, uh, whether I've got any spiritual interest in it or not. And so I pray that you would uh, circumcise my heart so, and start, start with me, that uh, I would be really centered on and uh, focused on and responding to the greatness of my Savior, my Lord Jesus Christ, as uh, I do vocational ministry. Uh, this is such an amazing thing you've given us. The spiritual uh, dynamics of this uh, go far beyond the do a good deed every day. They teach the Boy Scouts. It's, it's reality. It's a reality of a relationship worked out in the ups and downs of life, in the joys and the sorrows, in sickness and in health. It's just like a, a wedding vow as we walk this uh, mortal soil uh, uh, knowing that uh, we live in a fallen world. So uh, let this uh, passage be challenging to all of us because I'm sure there are times we're unplugging, we're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, but let it be tremendously encouraging because as we're abiding in you, you're going to give us what we need to be what you want us to be, and you're going to renew our strength like eagles. So let this be a day of renewal for believers. We want to recommit ourselves to relationally and being abiding in Christ on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And when that stops, and we'll know it when we're sinning, cheating, lying, stealing, thinking things we shouldn't even about ourselves, we can just confess that and get back on the wagon where we fell off. Uh, Father, we also pray for anyone here this morning who's not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this is a, a amazing spiritual thing that you do where you convict sinners of Sin, they got it. Righteousness, they need it. Judgment, it's coming uh, of their own inability to, to crank out any kind of salvation, good works, uh, and then to trust wholly and completely in Jesus Christ alone as the crucified, risen Savior. If there's anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart trusted in Jesus alone, let today be the day of salvation. Uh, and for the rest of us, help us to renew our uh, desire to focus on, center on, abide in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.